Dear Heavenly Father, what an awesome privilege it is for me to be back in California, to be in my home state, to be not far from where I went to school, to see uh, some old friends, people I haven't seen in a long time, and, and above all, to have an, an opportunity to open the holy book, the Bible, and to share with this group what you have put in my heart, how you've helped me as I've wrestled and, and studied and tried to understand Revelation chapter 17. And you've opened this door, uh, not only here, but these messages will be on audio verse. People can listen around the world. We thank you for the technology that you've made available to spread your message in these last days, these closing hours of history. And we pray for your blessing. Please be with everybody here. Help me. May the Holy Spirit take control. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Uh, today's focus, this morning's focus, is on the seven-headed, ten-horned beast. Identifying the seven-headed, ten-horned beast. So let's look at our Bibles. And let's look at verse 8. The angel just said in verse 7, he's going to explain the mystery of the woman and the beast. Verse 8 says, The beast which you saw, this was the seven-headed, ten-horned beast that uh, John saw earlier, and the woman was riding on this beast. He said, The beast which you saw was and is not and shall do what? He shall ascend. He shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell upon the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. I tell you, people have been uh, reading this passage and pondering it and trying to figure it out for a long, long time. Uh, I recently read a book that gave nine different interpretations of the seven heads. So there's a lot of views out there, a lot of theories. I've wrestled with the different theories trying to understand this myself. And I'll just let you know a little bit about me. Uh, I am not a person that, that relishes speculation. Uh, I'm not here to just try to give you a whole bunch of human opinions. I think that you know there's a there's a place uh, in certain areas of life for human opinions. But when it comes to scripture, we need to try to put aside human opinions and see what the Lord has to say. And so my goal uh, in my book and our ministry, White Horse Media, is not to to just come up with all kinds of ideas but it's to direct people to what God says, to what he says in his book. Uh, I, I wrestled with Revelation 17 for a long time. I've written many books. God has led me into writing. That's my field. Uh, I've written a lot of books. And when I was wrestling with this, I, I kept thinking to myself, I can't put this into, into a book unless I really know what I'm talking about. Uh, I don't want to put something out and, you know, put my name on it and send it out 
uh, and give White Horse Media a black eye. It's not what I want to do. I don't want to you know, create a whole bunch of controversy. I want to help people to understand Jesus and the Bible in a way that makes sense and brings conviction to the heart and brings us low at the foot of the cross and helps us to open up to the Holy Spirit to change our lives. So anyway, I've uh, wrestled with this and certain things have finally come together enough. The dots finally came together enough where I felt like it was time to go public and to put it in a, a manuscript and to send it out. So uh, you'll be the judge as a result of the next couple, couple of meetings and you can see whether you think this is biblical or not. Sound good to you? Okay, now one thing that really has impressed me in trying to understand these mysteries is the fact that in verse 8, we have a beast that goes through a series of phases. There's a was, he was, that's a phase. He is not, that's another phase. And yet he will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. So phases. Uh, this has really convicted me that we need to understand these phases. We all go through phases of life in our lives. You know, we have the little baby phase, and then we, we grow up. We have the, uh, the professional student phase. <laughs> when we go to college, go to a university, then we have, you know, later on, uh, if we get married, we have the children phase, professional phase. And then the declining phase, as we get older, uh, I had in my life, there was the sunny Southern California phase when I used to, as a teenager, go down to Zuma Beach and go swimming and lay out in the sun. Uh, now I'm in the, the cold phase of North Idaho, living in temperatures that can get down to zero. So phases, phases are very important in people's lives and it's the same with Revelation 17 this is a critical point in order for us to understand this chapter and who this beast is we have to understand that there are phases one phase the was the is not and then the ascend phase now another uh, critical point that I've discovered and I call this the Revelation 17 13 connection and that is that Revelation 17, verse 8, that we just read, is a perfect parallel to Revelation 13, 8. And I've concluded that one of the best ways to understand Revelation 17 is to connect it to chapter 13. So let's just, uh, let's turn back a couple of pages to chapter 13 and look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Do you see the connection? 17.8 talks about the beast that was and is not, and when he ascends, the whole world will wonder after him whose names are not in the book of life. And then chapter 13, verse 8, talks about the beast and how the whole world will wonder after the beast whose names are not in the Lamb's book of life. So 17.8 and 13.8 parallel perfectly. And when you look at chapter 13, we also see a series of phases. If you look at verse 1, 13.1, 1, 
John said, I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. So here's a beast rising up out of the sea. And in verse 3, John wrote, I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death. And then his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. So we see phases again. We see this beast rising up, and there's a time when he's ruling, and then he gets wounded, a deadly wound, that's another phase, and then the wound is healed, and the whole world wonders. So clearly, we can see these, these different phases, chapter 17 and in chapter 13. Now let's go back to chapter 17. 17.9. Seventeen nine says, Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Uh, I've pondered this verse a lot and looked at different verses, different views on this. And I've come to a, uh, a number of principles that I've adopted. Last night when I talked in the Zoom meeting about the, uh, the clues of identifying the, the bloody woman, I've concluded that one of the principles that I've adopted is I call it the weight of evidence principle. That you don't just look at one piece of evidence or two or three, but you look at all the clues in chapter 17 of who this woman is, and then you're able to put the pieces together correctly. So the weight of evidence principle. Uh, I have another principle that I've adopted which I call the symbol to literal principle. And that principle is that when a symbol is used in, in prophecy in Daniel and Revelation, and then when an angel or a prophet interprets the symbol, we find over and over and over and over again that the symbol is interpreted literally. Symbol to literal principle. And I'll show you this in chapter 17, verse 15. 17, 15. The angel said to John, the waters which you saw where the whore sits. The great whore is described in 17.1 as sitting upon many waters. And now here the angel is saying that the waters, which is the symbol, where the whore sits are, and here's the application, they are people and multitudes and nations and tongues. So uh, hopefully you can see that principle there that the, we, if we go from symbol to literal, right? The symbol is the water, and the application is the people, multitudes and multitudes of people who ultimately support and who are deceived by the bloody woman that's sitting upon the beast. So now that principle is mentioned many, many times or actually illustrated many times in the Bible. I'll just quickly give some of these to you. In Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of, of a metal man with different, different metals. And Daniel the prophet interpreted these metals to represent literal nations, one by one, which we apply to Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Daniel 7, we see the same principle. In Daniel 7, uh, Daniel, Daniel had a dream of four great beasts, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a dragon-like beast with ten horns. And in verse 23, Daniel 7, 23, the angel said the fourth beast is the fourth kingdom upon the earth. So we go symbol, literal, same thing. Daniel chapter 8, uh, Daniel had a dream of a, of a ram and a goat. 
And then the angel came and interpreted that dream or that vision. And he said that the, the ram represents the kings of Media and Persia and that the goat represents the king of Greece. So again, symbol, literal, symbol, literal. Uh, and I believe we see the same thing in chapter 17, verse 9, Revelation 17, 9. If we follow that principle, the scripture says, here is the mind that has wisdom. The seven heads, that's the symbol, are, and here's the application, they are seven mountains on which the woman sits. So first of all, I interpret this literally. Uh, the, the Greek or the, the Greek underlying word for mountains, if you look it up in Strong's Concordance, you'll find that it can be translated as mountains or hills. And that points us to the famous seven-hilled city of Rome. Rome has been known throughout the centuries as the city of seven hills. There was an ancient Roman emperor, Vespasian, who had a coin made, and uh, he was one of the Caesars, and on the coin was a, was a picture of a woman sitting upon seven hills, which represented the seven-hilled city of Rome. So this is common knowledge. You can Google this. You can research it, that Rome uh, classically and famously is called the city of seven hills. And so my conclusion is that this woman is sitting in Rome and that Rome is critical to understanding Bible prophecy. Now, I've also discovered in my research that there are three seven-headed, ten-horned beasts in the book of Revelation. And these uh, three beasts are mentioned nowhere else in the Bible, just in Revelation, and they're in three places. Three different seven-headed, ten-horned beasts. The first one is in Revelation 12, where we have a dragon-like beast with seven heads and ten horns. Revelation 12, verse 3. Revelation 13, 1, we have a second seven-headed, ten-horned beast that has a body like a leopard, the leopard-like beast, which we read about just a, read just a couple minutes ago. And that's the second one. And the third one is in Revelation 17, which is a scarlet-colored beast. So the dragon is red. The second one is like a leopard, spotted body. And the third one is uh, scarlet color. And I've concluded that all three of these seven-headed, ten-horned beasts all point to the city of Rome. They all have to do with something to do with Rome. They are all Roman. And that they represent different phases of Rome. Just like we have the phases in chapter 17, verse 8. So we have phases of these different beasts. Now let's just take a look at these briefly. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. And on a practical level, you know, when you understand that the book of Revelation deals with, with uh, beasts that ultimately affect the world, and then we see its focus, its ultimate focus on a lamb who represents Jesus, we see that we have a battle between beasts, strong beasts, and a lamb. And guess who wins? Who ultimately wins? The lamb, that's right, the lamb wins. And isn't it true that, that inside all of our hearts, 
there is a battle going on. And I've concluded that when it gets, you know, to make it real practical, we're all battling with, uh, with beastly temptations. You know, the forces of the dragon, the forces of the beast, the, the inner forces of deception and Satan. Uh, and then on the other side is the, the power of the lamb. Uh, one of the beasts in chapter 13, verse 11, has two horns like a lamb but speaks like a dragon. And I've concluded that we're all in a battle between the dragon and the lamb. The ultimate dragon is the devil. And we all have to choose, you know, whose side we're on in this, in this battle. And it's a struggle. And, and the forces of evil, God represents as, as big beasts, seven-headed, ten-horned beasts, dragons, things like this. And I've concluded that we cannot overcome the forces of the devil in our own strength. We need the power of the Lamb to change our lives and to give us the strength. So anyway, that's not even in my notes. That's kind of a sideline. We want to make this real personal. And we'll do that more as we go, as we go along. So Revelation 12, verse 3 says, there appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. So here's the first seven-headed beast, three of them. Here's the first one, a great red dragon. Now, we know from verse 9 that the great dragon, primar the primary application is to the devil himself. Verse 9 says, The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So the primary dragon is, is the devil. And the devil is a serpent. He deceived Eve, and he's been deceiving people throughout history. And this verse says he, he ultimately deceives how many people? <laughs> says the whole world. He deceives the whole world. And that ought to really put us on our, our toes that if we're going to resist his deceptions, we need to be followers of Jesus and the Bible. So the primary dragon is the, is the devil. But this chapter also anchors the dragon in history. And we know that from verse 4. Verse 4 says at the, at the end of the verse that the dragon stood before the woman. There was a, a, a pure woman who was pregnant and he was ready to, the woman was about to be delivered and the dragon was gonna, going to try to devour her child as soon as it was born. So this anchors this chapter in history. The child was Jesus and when he was born, the devil worked through Herod, who was a Roman ruler, to try to kill the baby Jesus. And we know that from Matthew 2, that uh, when Herod found out, when the wise men came and found out that Bethlehem was the place for this child to be born, when he found out that he had been tricked by the wise men and that they didn't come back after he told them to come back, he said, come back and I, tell me where the child is because I want to worship him too. You know, that was a, a lie. He didn't want to worship the baby. He wanted to kill the baby. But God sees beneath 
the lies of men and he directed the wise men to go a different way after they had found Jesus. And so when Herod got wind of the fact that he had been tricked or that the wise men weren't coming back, he sent soldiers to Bethlehem to kill all the babies under two years old. It's one of the most awful things. Can you imagine? You know, I wouldn't want to be Herod on the day of judgment after he did that. Horrible thing, can't even imagine the nightmare of the slaughter of the innocents. So anyway, uh, the dragon worked through Herod. And if you look at history, the devil worked through the Roman Empire in many different ways. It was Roman soldiers that nailed Jesus to the cross. When Jesus rose from the dead, there were Roman soldiers that were trying to protect the tomb that he didn't get out. But, you know, the angel came down rolled away the stone like a pebble, it says in Desire of Ages. The Roman soldiers fell flat on the ground like dead men. And then they, with white faces, went and finally told Pilate that they saw an angel come down and the stone was rolled away and Jesus rose from the dead. As the early church began to spread out in the Roman world through the power of the Holy Spirit after the day of Pentecost, the Roman Empire fiercely persecuted the Christians. They butchered them. They sent the Christians into the Colosseum. They watched them get torn apart by wild animals. This was the entertainment of the Romans, watching the Christians get eaten up by lions. Can you imagine? I tell you, we have it easy today compared to the early Christians. We have it very, very easy. Uh, as Christianity continued to spread, Emperors like Nero, Decius, Diocletian, they slaughtered the Christians probably by the millions for the first three centuries. So uh, that's why the dragon with seven heads and ten horns represents Satan and the Roman Empire. He worked through the Roman Empire to try to kill Jesus and he successfully uh, butchered millions of Christians. Now, Notice something. And for me, as I studied this, you know, little by little, the pieces came together. I want you to notice, if you look at verse 3, the dragon, where are the crowns on that dragon? It says he has seven heads and ten horns, and there's crowns, and where are the crowns? They're on the heads, not on the horns. And that indicates that we're in the time of the Imperial Roman Empire before its breakdown into ten parts. The crowns are on the heads during the time when Rome was ruled by the Caesars. Now, go to chapter 13, Revelation 13, and look at verse 1. Here's the second seven-headed, ten-horned beast. We read this already. I stood upon the sand of the sea. I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And notice, where are the crowns? And upon his horn, on his horns are ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. So, did you catch that? In the first seven-headed beast, the crowns are on the heads. But in the second seven-headed beast, the crowns are not on the heads, but they're on the horns. 
In other words, where this is a development in the history of the Roman Empire. And if you study prophecy, uh, it tells us in verse 2 that this beast which I saw was like a leopard. It took characteristics of the leopard in Daniel 7, which was Greece. His feet were like the feet of a bear, which goes back to Persia. He has characteristics of Persia. And his mouth is like the mouth of a lion, which takes us back to Daniel 7 and the lion, which was Babylon. He has characteristics of Babylon. This beast sort of uh, incorporates the different nations and their teachings into itself. And then the dragon, which in the light of Daniel 7 and Revelation 12, represented the imperial Roman Empire. It says the dragon gave to this new beast, the second beast, his power and his seat and great authority. Now, where was the seat of the Roman Empire? It was in Rome. And now the dragon gives his seat of government to the second beast here, the second seven-headed, ten-horned beast. And the, this new beast sits right on the seat of the ancient Roman Empire, which is the city of seven hills. Same thing. These prophecies are all intertwined. This is all, this is all like a big jigsaw puzzle. I don't know if you like jigsaw puzzles or not, but Revelation 17, 13, 12, Daniel 7, Daniel 2, it's all like a big jigsaw puzzle. And God wants us to dive deep into these mysteries and try to put the pieces together, and they all help us to understand solid historical events so that we can understand what's happening in the world right now and what's coming. Somebody once said, those who fail to learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat its mistakes. Uh, it's tragic that the so-called cancel culture is, uh, you know, not interested in history, at least uh, credible history. And they're just, you know, they just want to get rid of history. They don't want to look at history. But history is, the word history breaks down to his story. That's what history is. It's his story. And history and prophecy go together. And when I first became a Christian and I finally, and I discovered this, that history and prophecy go together, that's what motivated me to start studying history because I want to understand prophecy. I want to understand the sure word of prophecy, what has happened in the past, what's happening now, and what's happening in the future. Just like the Bible says that God uh, was and is and shall always be, it's the same thing. These counterfeits that. So anyway, uh, we have now we have the crowns on the horns, which indicates that the Roman Empire is no longer being ruled by the Caesars, but now the the balance has shifted to the ten horns, which point to Europe, the European uh, nations that ruled Europe, and this the beast of Revelation 13 ruled through its connection with the European kings. That's history. That's why in Revelation 17, it says that the woman fornicates with kings. A lot of her power has come through her connection with the kings of the earth, through legislation. She's pressured the kings to legislate in her favor. And that's basic, uh, basic history that takes us down through the Dark Ages. So the second beast has crowns on the horns 
indicating now we're in the European phase where the beast is ruling through the kings of Europe. Now turn to chapter 17. And when I first discovered this, started putting these pieces together, I got really excited. I thought, wow, Lord, is this right? Are you really helping me to understand this? That in chapter, that the first beast has crowns on the heads, the second beast has crowns on the horns. And I, I thought to myself, where will the crowns be in chapter 17? And uh, I, I, if you look at the first verse, Revelation 17, verse 1, there came one of the seven angels who had the seven vials, and he talked with me, and he said to me, come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great whore that sits on many waters. This is a powerful text. And I mentioned this last night that what's happening in chapter 17 is John now encounters an angel who is one of the angels with the seven last plagues, which points us down to the very end of time. The seven last plagues finally come in chapter 16 of Revelation. Those plagues are ahead of us. They haven't come yet. One of these days they're going to hit like, like this world has never known. Just like when the ten plagues hit Egypt, there will be seven final plagues at the end of the world. And those plagues are coming. And this angel's one of the angels who pours out the plagues, and he comes over to John, and he doesn't say, John, I'm going to come back to you where you are. He says, I want you to come here to where I am. A lot of people think Revelation 17, the whole context, is John's day. I don't agree with that. I've concluded that the context of Revelation 17 is not John's day. It's not the first century. In this chapter, John is... is uh, encountering an angel who's one of the end time angels. He's one of the seven last plague angels, which brings us down to the end time times. And then the angel says to John, he doesn't say, I'm going to come to where you are. He says, I want you to come here to where I am. And I'm going to show you a judgment that's going to come upon this bloody woman who sits upon the city of seven hills, who's drunk with the blood of the saints, who makes the whole world drunk with her wine. So verse 2, it says, uh, the, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Eventually the whole world gets drunk with the wine of Babylon. And that impresses me that God wants, the wine of Babylon represents the teachings of Babylon, the deceptions of Babylon, the false doctrines of Babylon, and God wants our wine to be pure. He wants uh, our, like Jesus said, new wine goes in new wineskins. God wants us to have a pure faith, a pure teaching, a pure doctrine as we follow the Lamb through the Holy Spirit and have faith in the Bible. That's God's plan for his people. So verse 3 says, so he carried me, and the next word says, away. He carried him away from the first century, away from the island of Patmos, away from the time of the Caesars away from his own time in the first century. He carried him away far down the stream of time, down, down the ages. In the spirit, he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns.
This is very interesting. Now, if you look at verse 3 carefully, the question is, where are the crowns? In verse 3. In the first beast, the crowns were on the heads. In the second beast, the crowns were on the what? The horns. And in the third beast, and I, I thought to myself, if, this, if God is bringing John down to the end times, and if this beast is now in a, in a judgment state, where judgment has begun to fall upon her, and is in a wounded state, which is the conclusion that I was, I was coming to, then if that's true, then when we get to that, that beast, there's not going to be any crowns on the heads or the horns. And I, you know, I was thinking about that, and, I, and when I first thought about that, I started, I, I turned the pages of my Bible, and my heart was pounding. I thought, is this really right? So I got to chapter 17, and I looked down, and I thought, sure enough, there's no crowns on the heads or the horns. And that told me that this, this beast is in a wounded state. Now, it's still there, but it's wounded. But as we keep reading this chapter, which we'll talk about uh, later on, the wound eventually gets healed. And the kingdoms, the ten horns, give their power and their authority back to the beast. And as we already read, it will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And I tell you, if that is happening in front of our eyes... Don't you think God wants us to know it? Yes. If the beast is ascending and coming back and getting back its power. Wow. So uh, I've concluded that the third beast is another phase of Rome where the beast is in a wounded, in a wounded state. Now, uh, notice something. I, I, as I looked at this, the word wilderness came out to me. I just thought about that word wilderness. Verse 3 says, He carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman. So chapter 17, he's down near the end of time, one of the seven angels with the plagues, and John is carried away from his own time into the wilderness. And I thought there's got to be some significance to that. God doesn't put words in the Bible for no reason. No. Words have reason. Yes. And I'd rather have one word from God than 10,000 words of men. Come on. Preach it. <laughs> God's words are powerful. So what about this wilderness? So I thought about that. And during my whole journey of trying to understand Revelation 17, I prayed, prayed, Lord, help me to understand these mysteries. Help me to understand the word of God. This is so powerful, this chapter. So then I, I realized that the word wilderness is used three times in Revelation. Revelation 17, we just read, and Revelation 12, where another woman flees into the wilderness. And let's take a look at that. Revelation 12, and she goes into the wilderness. It's mentioned twice. Revelation chapter 12 describes the pure woman that God wants us to be a part of. He doesn't want us to be part of the bloody woman 
who's decked out with all the jewels of the earth. He wants us to be part of the pure woman who's clothed with the sun, clothed with, with Jesus, standing on the moon, reflecting the light of the sun. That's God's purpose for his church. And during the course of Revelation 12, when the dragon discovered that the child got away and went up to the throne, he turned his, his uh, fierce forces on the woman. And it says in verse 6 that the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God that they should feed her there for how long? For 1,203 score days, for 1,260 days. So the woman is in the wilderness for 1,260 days. In verse 14, it says the same thing. To the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, and this is the good woman, the pure woman, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and a half a time from the face of the serpent. And that's uh, time is a year, so time times is two years, half a time is a year and a half, it's a half a year, so that's three and a half years, which is the same thing as 42 months, which we read about in chapter 13, verse 5. Three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days. You've probably heard of this prophecy. It's mentioned seven times in the Bible. Seven times. 1260 days. It's a major pillar of Bible prophecy. And the true woman during the 1260 is in the wilderness because she's being persecuted by the dragon. In other words, she's sort of, she's down. She's not out, but she's down. While the false woman during the 1260 years, she's up and she's persecuting and drinking the blood of the saints. But in Revelation 17, there's a reversal. And now the bloody woman goes into the wilderness. And that would indicate if the, if the true woman is in the wilderness for 1260, what would happen at the end of that period? After the 1260, she's going to come out. So the, the bloody woman gets knocked down and the pure woman comes up. Amen. Hallelujah. There's a big lesson for us in that. As we near the final days, God wants the true woman to continue to rise with his message. And eventually, the two women will clash in the final, final times. Now, uh, as I mentioned, the 1260 is mentioned, this period is mentioned seven times in the Bible. It's mentioned in Daniel 7, verse 25, chapter 12, verse 7, Revelation chapter 11, chapter 12, verse 6 and 14, and Revelation chapter 13, verse 5. Seven times. Uh, according to Ezekiel 4, 6 and Numbers 14, 34, a day in prophecy represents a year. So we have a 1260-year period. This is very important. Uh, the period began in the year 538 when the Eastern Emperor Justinian, the Roman Emperor Justinian, gave the Bishop of Rome, which was implemented, a total power in Europe. A lot of history behind this. And then going down 1260 years, it took us to the year 1798, when during the French Revolution, an army of Napoleon entered, uh, went to Italy, 
entered the Vatican, took the Pope captive, abolished the, the Vatican, the pap Papal States, and declared Italy to be a republic for France. And that happened in the year 1798. A lot of history behind this. You can read this history in the book, The Great Controversy, which is a very powerful historical book that has stood the test of time. In spite of skepticism about that book, it remains one of the most powerful books on planet Earth today that gives us the history of what happened with God's church and the enemies of God's church. So, back to Revelation 17. Verse 3 says, He carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw this woman sitting upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns, but there are no crowns on either the heads or the horns. And I've concluded, again, that, this, that the first seven-headed beast represents imperial Rome, ruling through the Caesars, sitting on the city of seven hills. The second seven-headed beast represents the shift to papal Rome, the Roman Catholic Church during the Dark Ages, where that church still sat on the city of seven hills, right on the seat of the dragon, just like prophecy says, and the rule switched to the, the crown switched to the uh, powers of Europe, where the popes and the kings worked together to rule Europe. And then the third seven-headed beast in Revelation 17, John is taken away from his own time, way down the stream of time, down to the, the final times, or at least closer to the final times. And now this woman is seen in the wilderness. She's under partial judgment. She's lost a lot of her power. She's down, and the true woman is up, But she will ascend, and the beast will ascend out of the bottomless pit and come back. So I've concluded that, the, that this third seven-headed, ten-horned beast in Revelation 17 represents also the papal power in a wounded state. It was, it is not, and yet it will ascend. It's going to come back during the final moments of time. Now, some people ask me, well, Steve, if, uh, and I wrestled with this, if the, if the woman represents the Roman Catholic Church, and, the, and I talked about this all last night, there's a whole lot of history behind this. Look at all the clues. It all fits together. Uh, and, and I mentioned this last night, that one of the points that kind of softens the blow on this is in Revelation 18, verse 4. It says, come out of her, my people. And that tells me that within the Roman church, God has lots of people that are his people, that are godly, sincere, honest people that believe in Jesus and are doing the best they can. And they're the right people, but they're in the wrong place. And they're inside of her and they need to come out. It also tells us this is a, this is a woman which represents a church. We have two churches. We have the, the pure church in chapter 12 
and the immoral church in chapter 17. And when you look at history, what happened was people, many people within the pure church decided that the righteousness of Jesus wasn't what they wanted. They weren't satisfied with the white robe of his righteousness, and they wanted the garments of kings. And so they shifted gears, and eventually this woman, there's a falling away, she's a fallen woman, and eventually instead of being clothed with Jesus' righteousness, she's clothed with purple and scarlet and all the gold and jewels of this world. And that reflects a change that took place within a stream of Christianity where a group within Christianity decided that they didn't want the righteousness of Jesus anymore. They didn't want the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity and the purity of clean garments that are white and pure, and they were tempted to go after the kings of the earth to commit fornication, and then she ends up as a fallen woman, as a bloody woman, clothed with all the, the jewels of the world. And I tell you, there's a big lesson for us in that, that we need to maintain our connection with Jesus and with purity and with truth and with righteousness and not go the way of the harlot, go the way of the, the woman. Now, again, uh, some people say, well, how could the woman be the Catholic Church and the beast also be the Catholic Church in its wounded state? How can they both represent the Catholic Church? And I wrestled with that, and here's my conclusion. In Daniel, that it's, my conclusion is it's composite imagery. In Daniel 2, the nations are represented by, by a metal man. But in Daniel 7, those same nations are represented by beasts. Same nations. And then a little horn pops up with eyes like a man. And then in Revelation 13, that horn with eyes like a man is called the beast. And then at the end of chapter 13, the beast has a number, which is the number of man, the number of a man. So Daniel 2, 7, Revelation 13 goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth between uh, imagery that represent, that's like a man or a human and imagery that's like a beast. And I've concluded that in Revelation 17, it's the same thing. I call this the Daniel and Revelation principle, that we look at Daniel and Revelation and put the pieces together. And so we have, a, we have a, a woman that is a seductive woman that seduces the world, that puts on a human face and smiles and offers her wine, come drink my cup. But underneath that woman, underneath those smiles, underneath the temptress, underneath what she, uh, you know, her, her charms, her feminine charms, underneath what lurks, Underneath is the same seven-headed, ten-horned beast that has persecuted the people of God for ages. And today, you know, I could talk a lot about what's happening today and the connections between the United States of America and the Vatican. A lot of connections going on these days. Are you aware of that? You know, when uh, President Biden was inaugurated, he asked a Jesuit priest to pray at his inauguration, Father Leo O'Donovan. And I listened very carefully to that prayer. And in his prayer, he uh, referred to Pope Francis and how Pope Francis said that we need to dream 
together. Together. And as we'll talk about later on this afternoon, that's what Revelation 13 is all about. As you keep reading the chapter, it's about the first beast representing the most powerful religion in the world right now, and the second beast representing the most powerful nation in the world right now, the Vatican and the United States, and how they are going to be coming together. Just like the Jesuit man prayed, we need to dream together and do this together. Well, there's a time for togetherness, and there's a time for separation. <laughs> you know, there's a time to come together and a time for social distancing, right? There's a time for, a, for a, a mask, and there's a time for the mask to be taken off so we can see the face of what's really there and what's underneath in Revelation 17, which is a beast. When God's people in the early centuries stood up for truth, it was, it was risky for them, but they were willing to do it. They were willing to get thrown into the Colosseum. They were willing to become the sport of the Roman Empire. They were willing to die for Jesus because Jesus was King of kings and Lord of lords, and he died for them. And they were willing to do anything and everything for their Savior. And we need to be among that group today. The Roman church puts on a fair face before the world, but underneath, Revelation 17 tells us there is a beast. And again, that doesn't mean that that's not, doesn't mean that Catholic people are bad. God has lots of people in the Catholic church that are his people. He has lots of people in lots of different denominations that are his people. Many different, and, and we need to be the people of God as well. Isn't that right? We need to be standing for Jesus. Now, I'm almost done here. I've got just a little more time. Um, and let me ask you, based on just the quick history lesson that I gave you, when, what was the year that the the bloody woman and the beast received its deadly wound. It was the year 1798. A lot of history behind this. You know, the French Revolution was really a bloody, the reign of terror was a bloody reaction to the history of the 1260 years where the Roman church ruled Europe through the kings. And Finally, the French said, enough. And they threw the baby out with the bathwater. They threw out God. They threw out the Bible, which a lot of people are doing today. They're giving up the Bible entirely. They're seeing the problems in religion, so they're giving up the Bible. And that's a mistake. That's what the French did. But the French finally uh, you know, went through this revolution, gave up the Bible, gave up Christianity, burned Bibles, led a woman through the streets of Paris, which they named the goddess of reason, and the result was a bloodbath. If you give up the Bible in favor of reason, the result is disaster. And that's what the French Revolution teaches us. And so Napoleon sent his general, Berthier, to the Vatican in February of 1798 and he knocked out the church. 
took Pope Pius VI captive and the Vatican received a deadly, a deadly wound in the year 1798. Now, notice verse, seven, uh, verse 10. And this is gonna, I've got like two more verses to go and I'll give you a teaser for the next meeting. I have no idea at 3.30 how many people are gonna be out there. <laughs> Hopefully, you'll all come back. Because I tell you, part three is gonna sizzle. It's gonna sizzle. Verse 10 says this, and there are seven kings, five are fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. Oh boy, got a little competition here with the train. Can you hear me? Can you still hear me? I think I'll wait a second. I know the devil doesn't like what we're doing. The devil doesn't like Bible prophecy. The dragon hates it. And he would love to distract us away from these truths. But he's not going to win. The train is gone. Verse 10. There are seven kings. Five are fallen. One is and the other is not yet come. And when he comes... He must continue for a short space. I've concluded that the only way to understand this verse is to correctly identify the is moment. We have to know when is is. He says five are fallen and one is, and the other is not yet come. The only way to know who the five are and who the other one is and who the one is is to know when the is is. See what I mean? What, what, what time period are we looking at? And a lot of people struggle with this and try to figure it out. And I think a big mistake that many people make is starting with John's day. They say, well, in John's day, five are fallen. They go back to Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and, and they get confused. But that doesn't make sense. The, the, the point of Revelation 17 is not John's day. John takes us is taken away from his day, like I said, down to the end times with the one of the seven angels that had the seven plagues. And when you look at the was is not sequence connecting chapter 17 with chapter 13, it's very clear that this prophecy is built around the 1260 days. And it takes us to the time, this chapter takes us to the time of the wound where the woman is in the wilderness. She's down and the other woman is up. So if we take that point of 1798, the point of the deadly wound, as the point of the prophecy, then we can go back from 1798 and look at the five that have fallen and figure out who they are. And then we'll know who the one that is in 1798. And we'll talk about this in the next meeting. And then we'll know, we'll be able to figure out who's the one that's coming. That will come for a short space. By the way, I'll give you a little teaser. Uh, you know, when the French took out the Vatican in 1798, there was another nation 
that when the Vatican was going down, there was another nation that was coming up at the same exact time. And the French were the ones that sent a big statue across the ocean to that nation. Know the name of that statue? It's the Statue of Liberty. That's right, the French recognized the power and the authority and the growth of the United States, which rose up as a nation to defend the principles of religious freedom, which had been denied during the Dark Ages. That's why our Constitution was established. Denying government the right to legislate to establish religion or to prohibit the free, free freedom thereof. Our Constitution uh, denies government the right to deny freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and the freedom to peaceably assemble. And these are huge issues that the world and the church needs to look at. So anyway, we'll continue this uh, this afternoon. Now I want to I want to finish with verse eight, and I want to bring this bring this home. What's that? Another train? I tell you, timing. What I got? How much time I got here? I still got four minutes till my cutoff time at ten thirty. Seventeen eight says the beast you saw was and is not and he will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition and they that dwell upon the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. And as I already read this first parallels chapter 13 verse 8. 13.8 that says all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that in the final times, the majority of the world are going to be deceived by the beast. They're going to wonder after the beast. They're going to follow the beast. They're going to drink the wine the wine of Babylon. And God is looking for a people who don't do that. And these people, their, their names will be in the book of life. The majority of the people of the world, their names aren't in the book of life. But God is looking for people whose names are in the book of life of the Lamb. Jesus has a book. He has his own book. And in that book, are the names of his true people, his true followers. And I've decided, I've concluded that the most important thing in my life more than anything else is to make sure that my name is in Jesus Christ's book and that it stays in there, stays in there. And it's the book of the Lamb, the Lamb. And that points us to the one who loves Catholics, who loves Protestants, who loves Republicans, who loves Democrats, 
who loves atheists, who loves evolutionists, who loves people at Loma Linda, who loves people at La Sierra, who loves Seventh-day Adventists, who loves Baptists, who loves everybody, who loves those who have money and those that don't. Jesus loves us all. And on the cross, on a cruel cross, 2,000 years ago, the Lamb of God paid the price for your sins and for my sins, for the sins of the entire world. And Jesus needs to be the center of our lives. What do you say? He needs to be our, our life, our hope, our joy, our bread, our butter, our everything is Jesus Christ. I know who brought me out of the Hollywood Hills. I know who changed my life. I know who worked through the book, The Desire of Ages, that I read in 1979 and showed me Gethsemane and the cross. I know who inspired the book, The Great Controversy. I know who loves me and who brought me to Loma Linda to have a chance to share his word with you today. And I wanna encourage you that Jesus loves you. He knows everything that's happening in your life. He knows all your ups and downs and ins and outs. He knows your battles with the dragon and with the seven-headed, ten-horned beast and with the struggles you have in your own heart and in your own mind. He knows all those battles. And he is totally able to forgive your sins, to change your life, and to bring you through whatever struggles you're going through. He, he's above all the kings. He's above all the lords. And he can help us all. His grace is sufficient for us. His power is made perfect in weakness. Last text is verse 14. Verse 14 says, These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords. He's above all the lords of this world. He is king of kings. He's above all the kings and all the nations. And they that are with him, those that are on his side, are called. God is calling us. They are chosen. He has chosen us. And they are faithful. Faithful to Jesus because he is faithful to us. May God help us to understand his word, to stick to the lamb, to avoid the wrong wine, and to be on Jesus' side when everything breaks loose and the persecution of the past is revived and all of the powers of darkness are targeting the people of Jesus but we will overcome by the grace of God because one bigger than this world is on our side. Let's, uh, let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege of being here in Loma Linda to speak to your people, to be in the shadow of this, uh, this university here, to have the awesome opportunity to open the Bible and to teach the word of the Lord. And I pray that you will bless all of us. Help us to dive deep into your word and to be connected 
to Jesus through the Holy Spirit as we trust the Word of God. Please bless us all. Bring us back this afternoon. Give us a good uh, remainder of the Sabbath. And we just thank you for your love and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.